oh, 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 well, well, well. It's another episode of the In Search SEO Podcast, where SEO insights fly higher than eagles and cheesy yet delightful Bette Midler songs. That's for you, 80s folks. In this episode, we talk to Jeannie Hill, the founder of Hillwhip Creations, all about intent and how it shapes a consumer's search journey, the role of intent to the consumer's path towards conversion, addressing consumer bias as part of the intent equation, and the advantage of targeting intent gaps. Plus, we talk the possibility of Google heavenly monetizing Google My Business. I am your host, Morty Oberstein, and I am not joined by the zealous, zealous, the copiously copious Kim Ragones, because Kim had a baby boy. Congrats, or as my people say, mazel tov. Mother and baby are doing fine, so Kim gets some rest because as a father of four, it's all downhill from here. Do not forget, we put out a new episode of the In Search SEO podcast each and every Tuesday. You can find it on the Rank Ranger blog. You can find it on SoundCloud. You can find it on Stitcher. You can find it on Spotify. And of course, you can subscribe on iTunes. Before we jump into the finer points of the customer's or the consumer's uh, journey vis-a-vis intent, let's get into what's hot in the world of SEO. Red Hots, get your Red Hots here. Oh, snap. It's everyone's worst nightmare. No, your father-in-law is not planning on moving in, which is actually my worst nightmare. Rather, there are some strong rumors, or more than rumors, flying around the ether, so to speak, that Google is looking to monetize Google My Business uh, in some way, shape, or form, and pretty heavily. So I first saw this, first got aware, became aware of this via a really nice write-up from former InSearch SEO podcast guest Andrew Optimizey, where he summarized a survey that was recently sent out. And in the survey, uh, Google, well, Google indicated that or seemed to imply that monetization to Google My Business is coming. How so? Well, for starters, the survey would stop in its tracks if you indicated you were not in charge of advertising spend. Hmm, peculiar. Next, the survey presented info on some potential features followed by how much would you pay for these features, which is very subtle, Google, very subtle, about as subtle as my father-in-law, hence the nightmare. Um, Okay, so what features was Google asking about would you be willing to pay for? There's a ton of them. So I'm going to focus on just a few here. First off... Uh, must be a fan favorite, would be paying to make sure no competitive advertisements appear inside of your listing. I don't know what to say to that. In all honesty, I don't know what to say to that. I really don't. Uh, Google, you have done what my mother has been trying to do for the last 35 years. You have managed to shut me up because I have no idea where to start with that. Okay, how about this one? And to quote, <clears throat> get an extra button on your business profile titled book. Google shows customers your availability. Synced with your calendar system if you have one. Customers can either confirm a booking or request a time slot. So boom shakalakalaka because who told you that Reserve with Google is going to get monetized? Right here on the InSearch SEO podcast when we interviewed Sergey Alakov, we did. Because now Google's going to try to change the name of the game and force a business, according to this survey, to pay to be in the Google Reserve with Google program, which, as Sergey Alakov pointed out, becomes problematic because one business, if one business opts in, well, the next one's going to feel they have to opt in because it's in, there's a book button within the local pack itself. So users can see, oh, I can book with you online. I can't book with you online, which sort of forces the small business to enter the Reserve with Google program. And now if you have to pay for it, if that's what's coming down the pike, that would really stink for a small establishment, your average everyday small business who doesn't want to pay for things that are extra. Okay, but my favorite, by the way, has to be the notion of 
verify reviews because reviews shouldn't be verified to begin with, right? I mean, because no one in the SEO industry, not Joy Hawkins, not Mike Blumenthal, no one's been banging on the drum that there's a problem with spam inside Google reviews. So now you would have to pay to make sure that what you have there is verified because Google, by giving users the ability to add reviews, shouldn't make sure they're copacetic, right? I mean, you have to pay to make sure that that's, that's okay. I don't get that one at all. By the way, and I know Google would never do this. I just want to point out a very interesting topic that comes out of verified reviews. You can, it's, a, it's a conflict of interest. Okay, so use your imagination here and join me as we enter the land of Google make-believe. Where's a trolley? Okay, um, you know, Mr. Rogers. Alrighty then. Okay, so now imagine this. Okay, imagine a business being left all sorts of wacky reviews. I imagine being bombarded with all sorts of wacky reviews. Wouldn't that business owner be more likely to pay for verified reviews? Wouldn't it then be in Google's best interest to ensure some wacky reviews make it through? And in this land of make-believe, that would be a conflict of interest. Now, again, Google would never be malicious like that. Okay, But as a tech giant, as a leader of the tech industry... As a company with so much personal data in their pocket, you have to be as clean as Mr. Rogers. You have to be squeaky clean. And that guy was really clean. Have you seen his shoes? There's never a drop of dirt on them. Anyway, you can't allow that optic. Okay, the possibility I presented, could you imagine what that would do to the, to the Google conspiracy theorists, what they would do with that? They would go crazy with that. It's not in Google's best interest, in my opinion, to do something like that. I think it'll hurt them long term, but who knows what's going to happen, right? Well, they'll probably make you verify them and pay for them, but anyway. Okay, so let's talk how we got here, because this is not new. In fact, I wrote an article way back in October 2017 pointing out this very possibility, because Google has long been souping up its SERP features for monetization. Okay, the best case I can possibly give you are the, the flight box and the, the hotel local panel. Um, you know, the local the knowledge panel for hotels. Um, in the latter, i.e. the hotel local panel, it is filled to the brim with ads from all sorts of booking sites. So if you're a hotel, I don't know, you're um, the Waldorf Astoria in Rakankama, Long Island. I don't think there's a Waldorf in Rakankama, but hey, it sounds good. Anyway, so imagine you show up and you have your local um, your panel for your hotel, and there's all sorts of booking sites, Expedia, Booking.com, uh, you know, Travelocity, whatever is Kayak, and they all pay to be in your profile. Now, you also pay in this case, right? You also pay so that you appear with them in that ad section and that, so that you can have direct bookings on your site. So hotel local panels are sort of, when they, when they got updated back in 2017, the end of 2017, this to me was the starting point of Google going all in with a very, very, very focused strategy on monetizing local features. So you want to know where it all started? To me, that's the starting point. Okay, but um, Google has long sought alternative to ads, which is why it does something like soup up the hotel local pack, local panel. Apologies. Why? Well, because an ad is an ad. And it has a stigma of not being trusted. And that brings the possibility of being harmful. Hence, Google launched the Chrome ad block. Or hence, you had the whole controversy with the Guardian pulling YouTube ads. Okay, uh, the, the interstitial penalty on mobile being another example of Google um, limiting its own ad showings. Which, of course, makes it harder for Google to earn ad revenue. One plus one equals two. If there's less ads being blocked and you can't do this kind of ad, you can't do that kind of ad. So, less ads equal less revenue. You don't believe me, right? Okay. Did you hear that the 2019 Q1 revenue information came out? Google's revenue information came out, and clicks are up 
39%. But did you also know that in Q4 2018, clicks were up 66%? That's a big slowdown right there. Also, the cost for click is down, meaning you have a slowdown of growth and people actually making that click, and then the cost for click has gone down. So Google's ad revenue has gone down. So ads being limited or ads in general are seeing a slowdown, which makes it more likely or makes it more makes much more sense that Google will go with something like monetizing Google My Business for extra for extra revenue. It just makes total sense. By the way, what a coincidence that just a few days before Google's Q1 ad numbers came out, hey, that the search engine sent out this survey about Google My Business. I mean, that's a pretty big coincidence. All of a sudden, the ad numbers go down, and all of a sudden, right before that, you get this survey about monetizing Google My Business. Coincidence? Intentional? Hmm. I wonder. Yeah. Okay, speaking of intent, I talked with Jeannie Hill a few weeks back. We got delayed in airing the interview to me. I'm a, I'm a slacker, and I, I was off for a while. Uh, which is why you'll hear me comment on the weather in Minnesota and be left scratching your head because it's really warm out now. So what are you talking about? Anyway, my interview scheduling is not your problem. So let's just hop over to my interview with Jeannie Hill, all about consumers and intent and search and how to deal with it all wisely. Cut one. Welcome to another InSearch SEO podcast interview. Here with us today is the founder of Hill Web Creations, an SEO and digital marketing agency out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. She, by the way, is one of the only people who is taking advantage of the Q&A feature and Google Post within the local panel. She is Jeannie Hill. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay. So I know we talked about this before the show, but I have to ask you for the sake of the show, you're from Minnesota, from Minneapolis. How cold is it right now? Today, we are above freezing, and on Friday, coming around the corner, we're going to be at 65. Oh, so it's a regular heat wave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I do not miss living in, in cold temperature weather cities. Um, okay. So you have this great article entitled, How Search Intent Shapes Consumer Journey Mapping. Um, for the sake of those who have not read it, and I will link to it in the, in the blog post at Harbors' this podcast, so you can read it and you should read it. Um, just give us a general gist of, of what you talk about. You talked about um, mapping out a consumer's journey and how intent is shaping that process. Just fill us in a little bit. Sure. When I consider uh, mapping the consumer journey, that is for myself or the business owner that I serve, if not for the user, it's really for us to align with the user and understand three aspects. I kind of will nutshell it in this, their intent, their needs. We may know something they don't need. They just know they're hurting. And then their exact pain points. And once we can really lay that out and understand where they're at at each one of those steps, then we can map a better response. Okay. So is that is that dependent upon the, the type of consumer base that you're dealing with? Or is there a general process? How do you go about mapping out a consumer journey? Yes, it very much depends on the consumer or um, the, the entity that I'm at at that moment as far as there are some um, pages for a client that are, you know, product pages and they're selling off of them. But we need to get somebody there first. And a lot of times people are looking for information before they make a purchase, especially a major purchase or a complex purchase. 
And so that is uh, deciphering and kind of ferreting out what kind of information somebody needs to buy that certain sort of thing. And then getting the information out there for them so that they can begin their journey to finding you. So you're really trying to get into the consumer's head, basically. Yeah, yes, really. I think it has just been, uh, I'm sure you can relate to this, years of, uh, myself included, years ago, where it was like, this is me, this is what I do, this is, um, you know, how I go about it. And today, I really have just flipped that 100%. Right. It It is funny, because as marketers, we always talk about getting inside the consumer's head and knowing what they want and what they need. But in terms of search, it's just coming around to that now with the idea of search intent and users, uh, a user search journey and all that sort of thing. It's kind of it's sort of a disconnect that's gone on between the marketing world and, and the search marketing world. Yeah, it's really true. And I think we we have thought or <laughs> at times maybe that Google organic search or other search engines owed us something <laughs> if we had this perfectly wonderful page. And in fact, they are serving the searcher and connecting them to content. So it's just coming from that perspective that really this is about the person conducting a search. Right. So with that, and because your consumer base is not monolithic, how important do you think it is to create multiple messages, meaning with multiple forms of content, multiple messages, each each message in its own language, each aiming at a, multi, a multiple set of users who might be coming for multiple intent purposes? I know you just used the word multiple multiple times. I got it. Yes. <laughs> and I think right there. That was there, keyword you, stuffing. Sorry. <laughs> but right there, you, you totally said what we need to know is we have to be able to meet them on, on multiple channels, in multiple formats, with different messages that meet the stages that they're at as they go from first looking at an option to getting more information on it to then researching this brand that they might buy from versus another brand to the details that they actually need to make the final purchase. Right, and that journey is, is so important. And I, I really want to get into that um, in, in a bit. How do you effectively, though, target multiple users? And okay, so here's my pain point. As we all talk about, we're targeting multiple users. We have to target multiple users. Google's targeting multiple users, multiple this, multiple that, and intent this and intent that. But how do you effectively do that, especially if you're not a big brand? And you don't have a huge budget. You know, actually, I would have to say that's probably my favorite because it, it just makes a, a client so thrilled when they win, say, a quick answer box or um, some featured snippet over a big brand. And I love this aspect of marketing because it lets us do that. So I've kind of got just a couple points here. I'll just kick out real fast and you can ask me more or move on. Go for it. But I think first, the, the, before creating that content, I try to determine what Google's history is on that SERP. Um, so is Google regarding that query or search phrase largely as coming from and needing to meet buying content or learning content? And so what well, it's just totally, I think, beyond my ability or, or probably most of ours to really understand the algorithms. And they are getting so smart and complex, their ability to resource a lot of information to, to within this fraction of a second do a match is just crazy. 
So I think the first one is just a, a basic understanding of the SERP, that particular SERP. I often change it or tweak it or adjust it after doing my research. Um, so I might start with a head term and then I'll settle into what I feel like will really work. The second thing would just be, be the best answer to a specific question. There's so many pages out that are general content and to really win on a specific search intent, I think just really going in depth with the best answer on it. So that means I study all the other answers right. out there or found questions nobody's answering. And then I would go after a featured snippet on it. There are just some really neat tools that help you ferret out if there's a featured snippet on a, a certain search query or not, or you know, you can look at who owns it and if you have a chance. And then I'll I'll go after one that I think I have a chance to win on. Right. And then the last one would be to break the category down into chunks. And so if I take a unique chunk of that, if something else is covered, and I think I've got a, you know, a different perspective or maybe something that wasn't covered in depth, then I will create my content that has that unique approach in a, to a small chunk. You're referring to like a, something like a content pillar sort of thing where you have um... – you have like a pillar page, and out of that, you come. You're shooting off, you know, a blog post, another blog post, maybe a landing page, something related to it, that sort of thing. Yes, yes, and many times, you know, that's where the long tail uh, search phrase can meet uh, a specific intent, search intent, because it's going to be really targeted. And then often on that page, I I used to just rely more on H1, H2, H3s. Now I'm as deep as almost always going adding an H5. <laughs> they, they give the data that gets cataloged and gets connected for the knowledge graph and to understand what's in that article so it can match that intent. And by going that deep, a small business can can win over a, a larger company, I believe. No, for sure. We're doing it. For sure. I mean, that, that's, what, that's what makes it so... Um, an equal playing field at times, and that's what's so great about doing something like doing a content, a, a cluster or a content pillar is that you have the opportunity to create deep, deep content that aligns to any number of users at any, at any number of points along their quote-unquote search discovery or search journey as opposed to going one topic, moving on to the next topic, moving on, moving on to that next topic. That's, that's so 2015 kind of thing. Oh, man, did you ever say it well. And it also those, you know, once you got that pillar established, this supplementary content can hit your different buyer personas in different stages of the journey right. and you've got enough depth to really win and or be seen as an, by the search engines as an ex, a topic expert. That's another thing, right? But having all that content that's so broad and holistic and in-depth and really covers the whole, the whole topic creates a certain degree of authority in the eyes of the search engine. Yes. Um, I want to ask you, so the history of the SERP, I love that idea. I have this whole... I, this whole soapbox point that I speak about that the future of SEO tools will be um, those tools that can show you what the, the history of the SERP is and what the intent looks like on the SERP and, and so forth. Um, and until that point comes along, the only thing you can really do is go onto a SERP and check out what it looks like. Now my, my favorite one that I always fall back to is buy car insurance. I'll, I'll mention it later on in another question. When you type in buy, buy car insurance, let's say in 2010, you're just going to get Geico, the general, nationwide. If you're not from America, those are all... Um, Insurance companies where you can buy a policy. Uh, now, I looked at it a, maybe a year ago. 
and there's a 60-40 split. 40% of the sites were sites where you couldn't buy a policy, but sites where you can actually learn about buying a policy, what you, what you should consider, what goes into an insurance policy, um, how do you go about choosing. And when I looked, maybe it was two months ago, three months ago, Nationwide, I think it was, wrote a piece of content about how to choose a a insurance policy. Now, Nationwide is a car insurance policy carrier. They sell you car insurance. And they were in the featured snippet for the for the keyword buy car insurance at the time. Not for one of their pages where they offered you an insurance policy, but for one of the pages where they told you about an informative page about insurance policies. So it's definitely worth checking out what's on that SERP and what Google does or doesn't prefer. Even if the sites there are 80-20 split, in this case, there's a 60-40 split, 40% being for informational content. The informational content was in the feature snippet. You know, I think that's just totally fascinating. I, I read your article back in January and loved it. Um, I think uh, it really addresses where the intent landscape of searches is, is advancing. And it's hard when you're serving a business and you've got, you know, uh, you're doing something like you and I are, and, and we've got metrics we have to prove to not be driven and maybe overly driven to that sales content. And this, I think what you just said is such a case for going back and improving on existing pages yeah. and getting information on them. We don't have to always do another page and maybe we could even end up with a competing URL to our pillar page. And it's even worthwhile to go back on preexisting pages and check them again. And the ones that you do update in a year from now, go back and check them again because who knows what it looks like now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So speaking of intent, so one, um, I'm going to jump a little bit. Intent, when we speak about intent, we think about the user's search purpose, why they're searching. But really, intent speaks to a lot more than that. There's certain, when you think of a product or a service or whatever keyword you're, you're, you have in mind, right? There's certain latent notions about the keyword, about the product, about the service, certain a priori notions. For example, do you remember back in the day they had um, um, the music clubs like BMG and Columbia House? Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right, so what I was. <laughs> right. So I, I once did that. I signed up, right? You got you, what was it? You, you, you sent them a dollar and they sent you 12 CDs, but the catch was they sent you a monthly CD that they charged you for and you had to cancel the subscription. If you didn't cancel, they charged you. It was the whole thing. I, I remember trying to beat the system and not winning. I, I remember being scammed and trying to run my scam on them, which was probably not a good idea. But anyway, those companies, for better or for worse, they had a certain connotation of, of, of spammy scamminess. They were spam before there was web spam. They just send you the flyers in the mail. <laughs> right? <laughs> so when a, all things being equal, imagine those companies were still around today. If I was searching online for something like that or something related to that, part of my intent profile, part of the way I relate to that keyword or that, or that product is these certain notions of that they are spam and there's not a good company or they're whatever. I mean, you can think of any company and their online reputation. If I'm searching for them or searching relating to them, the way I relate to them on the web page, the way I relate to them in the keyword that I'm using even, includes all of those latent notions about that company, product, or keyword. Um, how much goes into, when you talk about catering to user intent, how much goes into um, discussing or, or thinking about consumer biases versus purely targeting intent per se, and uh, what are some ways marketers can identify and deal with those sort of latent underlying um, intent associations that consumers may have? Well, I, I think you addressed um, the third one and where I started in that was their pain points. And I think lots of times, to your point, that's fear. 
If right. I buy this, am I going to get a bad product? <laughs> Will I get billed every month a dollar for it? You know, and it'll take them three months to take me off their list. Um, and so uh, some of the things that I do is uh, I might reach out to an influencer, ask them for a quote um, and put it on that page. You know, I always just deeply appreciate when somebody says yes to that. And of course, then, you know, I, I give them do credit and source them in my article. But I think seeing a name that somebody recognizes offers assurance. Yeah. Um, testimonials on that page offers assur assurance, um, you know, as far as what it would mean to cancel, getting those details out there, being tra just transparent and honest. Yeah, and think for sure. I mean, there's there's so much and, and so many various points during the, you know, if we want to call it the search journey or the marketing funnel. Where, where the consumer needs that reinsurance to, to move forward. And that's a great, that's a great way to address um, the so-called negative associations to a product or the possible negative associations to a product. Um, okay, let me jump to another topic. You mentioned the idea of, of letting the purchaser lead in your article. So how does this happen? How, um, how does this relate to Google's um, deeper intent um, advancements and abilities? And how do you actually let the purchaser lead? Yeah, well, you know, I think that comes from the school of hard knocks, maybe. <laughs> but <laughs> I, as much as we're digital and having these conversations that are words on a page, of course, images and video add a lot. But where I can, I'll reach out to somebody. If they've left their contact details, I might um, follow up by their email and say, would you be open to a call? Um, and really reach out with them. All my clients, I sit down and meet with, even if it means traveling, because I want to learn from them. So first of all, just understanding from their words and their perspective, their window, it, I always learn. I always, always learn. Somebody has a different approach than me. So, you know, whether that means a phone call, meeting in person, doing surveys, you know, calling from a forum, um, user comments that are left on a post, you know, those are just all gold for me because they give me a chance to get outside of my head and inside of theirs. And uh, then the other one is I try to use their language. Um, Yoast has an article that they've put out, you probably read it, that's about keyword stemming. And so I think many times I'm very familiar and comfortable and following my patterns of how I speak but seeing the versions or, you know, a, a similar word that they use. And then if I'm talking to them, use the language that they, you know, they are using and relate to. Um, I try to answer at their level. So I might ask, have you had any other experience with this? Have you, do you have successes you want to tell me about? What, what are you most concerned about? So my answer just can come in right away at their level or at their pain point. Um, the other thing I do is analyze search performance for non-geosensitive queries, or if it's a page that will be for local intent, then I'm looking for the local queries. So I kind of segment how I'm going to build out my page, depending on what need that page is going to meet. That's a really, I'm, there's so much focus on user intent, obviously, but no one talks about user language. Um, and I, I'm I'm so happy you brought that up. I did not see that Yoast article. I will check that out. Actually, it's a really good point. I never, I, I never really thought about it to this extent. 
that the different ways that a user talks or a consumer talks, you have to you have to be able to to transcend the bridge between the way you talk and the way they talk. Um, it's something like very similar to, to voice search. Actually, one of my one of my hangups about voice search is that the way, there's so many different regional dialects or so many different ways or so many gaps between oral language and written language that voice search is still, I think, in a very, very, it's very, very infancy because of that. And to a certain extent, I think the way we target user intent, based upon what you just said, is also in its infancy that if we're not going to consider, and it's not even one of the talking points we hear about, the way a, a user talks has to be catered to. Uh, brilliant. I never really thought of that. You know, I think otherwise they can get into an article and they're just, they just can't connect to it and they might be gone. Yeah, no, for for sure. I mean, that part part of understanding intent is understanding their their emotional point of view, their their needs, their pain points, but also how they relate to things verbally. For okay, let me let me ask you this: okay, for for any okay. given topic, there are certain intent gaps, and I brought up before the the case of um the my buy car insurance example, right, where you have forty percent of the sites on the SERP are sites where you have informative content, and sixty percent actually sell you a car insurance policy. Um, now, you you have, in most of these cases, you have, or most of the cases on the SERP, you have various um, intent breakups, right? You have, uh, you know, 10% of the SERP is allocated to this intent slot and, and 90% to this and 20% on this SERP and, and 30% on this SERP. There's all these different breakdowns of how to what how many results Google's going to give to a certain intent on any, given, on any given SERP. What I found, though, is that most SERPs have a sort of essential intent and the majority of sites will target that essential intent. And there is a, a secondary intent or a subintent, if you want to call it that. And then Google also allocates websites or results to, to meet that subintent. For a smaller brand trying to compete with sort of a, a, multi, a multinational brand who dominates the SERP, does it make sense to try to fill this content gap where there are for that secondary subintent? Where there's and that, that subintent often does not have as much content as the main intent, which makes sense because if I, for example, put in buy car insurance, most content creators are going to focus on selling a, a product that offers car insurance for that keyword. To offer information about buying car insurance, to offer a guide to how to go through and buy a car insurance policy is not as heavily competitive as um, competing with Geico Nationwide and, and Allstate for actually buying a car insurance policy. Is it a good strategy? Do you recommend this sort of mid-level brands, smaller brands to target that sub-intent, to target that secondary intent profile. In this case, it would be running a review of all the different car insurance companies or, or what, something along those lines in order to get on SERPs. Oh, I totally agree with you. I think that is a great way to do it. One of those big keyword terms or head terms that kind of everybody's been winning on for years or the major companies have, you know, I, I feel like many times they'll insist on, well, that's what we need. But if you don't have the resources to compete on that level, it can really be frustrating to go down that road without saying something and then having them discouraged. So I think it really helps as much as I can. I just love getting my mind into how this connects so that the more informed I am on the structured entity that the search engines uses, Google in particular, to pull up an information page, then the better I can be there. And, you know, so I'm, if I'm considering it as a, a server system comprising of memory that it's going to resource, and I know on top of that historical memory bank, there's other processors that are pulling in the history of that particular search 
search or the geolocation where they're coming from and uh, a number of other you know signals that they've given that have that all roll into what they're going to pull up and so by just you know either investing in an understanding of that or hiring somebody who has it i think you can find those gaps yeah there are tools i just i don't know what i do without content gap page a tool i'm throwing a plug to rank ranger we have a content gap tool as well just so you know oh my goodness okay <laughs> I don't, I've got to find out. No, no, no worries. But I think when you realize if, if you can expand your, your scope of where you're going to go with the page and consider alternate uh, variations of how you would say the same thing, you can find uh, a search query phrase that has a chance for good impressions to get you some clicks and yet isn't already nailed down by somebody stronger or former from you so but, but i always start with where's your roi you know goodness there's just no reason to go after that for right. something that's really not tightly themed to the business goals and where they have revenue on at the end because it's going to take it's going to take some work and resources right i mean look you can rank number one for any given number of keywords that have nothing to do with anything that won't really help right. you yeah. Yeah, and why why do it? You can boast you ranked for them, but if it <laughs> if your business goes under because it doesn't ranking for anything that brings in revenue. Right. Yeah, we we forget that ranking isn't the end goal. It's traffic and conversions and money in the bank, basically. <laughs> to put it bluntly. Um let me let me end off on this. An, about 2 hours before we we sat down to do this interview, you sent me a patent, a Google patent. It's like a 26-page yeah. patent. I never saw it before. I'm like, yeah, we should bring this up and talk about it. I'm like, oh, man, how am I going to read through this? But I did have time to skim through certain sections of it, and I want to bring it up because it is fascinating. So it's a patent about um, how Google goes about showing um, content within the, the knowledge panel. It has a different classes of entities. It knows that it's a TV show versus, a, uh, versus a, uh, a, a movie, let's say. What do you think in terms of entities and considering the patent that you sent me? Where are things heading with intent and, and, and entity search? On the SERP? Well, I think they're definitely using it to catalog, uh, you know, a very robust repository of answers to serve up. And so that can be a part of what's on their server system that they can leverage. Uh, and so being able to understand the, it just came out on March 14th. And yeah. it, it took me this last weekend to have time to sit and digest it. And uh, of course, I got all excited about it. <laughs> For those listening, it's called the Structured Entity Information Page, and it was a patent filed on March 14th. I think what I'm walking away with kind of at first blush and immediate is uh, going back to what, tying into what you said earlier, is if we understand the type of search or is it going to be classified as a buying search or an informational search. So it led me to... Um, a business I'd already heard of, and maybe you have, it's called javatips.net. But they put out the information there for where you can uh, go in and using JavaScript, you can find the, the entity class that Google's currently using on a search phrase. You know, well, how cool is that? Then, that is pretty cool. You know, because it's a lot of blind work. Well, it's not blind, but it's a lot of hours. <laughs> it's fun, but it takes a lot of time to just use lots of different devices, do it from different geolocations, modify your search query to kind of see what, hey, what's showing up here or here or here. 
And I find even if the next day I go back and sit at the same desk, the same location, use the same device, I get a different result. Yeah. That, that was one of the things I took away from the patent. You definitely read. I'll, I'll link to it in the, in the blog post here. How much of the what they show in the, for entities, in this case the knowledge panel, is contingent upon not only user history, but various incarnations of user history. For example, in the patent, they mentioned that when they show a, a knowledge panel, I, th- I forgot what the example is. It was Caddyshack. They have the in the. You should just check out the patent because it has some really cool knowledge panels in there. The, the example they use is Caddyshack, believe it or not. And <laughs> I'm drawing a blank on the exa- on what exactly it was, but one of the actors in there, they said, "Oh, after such and such event, this actor saw a ton more searches going on, so we put them in the people also search for." in this knowledge panel. And it goes to how the various ways they use search, user search history, user search behavior to, to go about showing content in the knowledge panel. For example, they'll show that they, they mention, well, we'll take how many times a, uh, people search for X for a week and we'll, we'll base it on that. Or, or various times they'll use it based upon a longer period of time. It's not just they're using your search history to show um catered content in the knowledge panel but there's so many different um, variations or incarnations of how they do that it was very surprising to me yeah it really is fascinating and um i think it goes back to really how much they rely on user history to keep tweaking or populating Mm it is just another real clear indication it's the user here that's driving this i think one of the things we can do on our pages to align our content with user intent is is be more factual, get more facts on. And you know, the knowledge panel is continually pulling in more and more packs or um, facts, and it, uh, it's much aligning with the Google um, local packs. And they're just all of a sudden populating with so much information. I went and looked for best hotels near the Mall of America. And I mean, it was as deep as any website. Yeah. And it was just what the, the local pack had put together for one hotel. Well, they, and they have a website now. What is google.travel slash hotels, whatever it is. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I think if in our pages, we will get make sure every detail we can put in there is available so we aren't hiding yeah. anything. We're making it easy, easy for people to understand, you know, from size to prices to colors to options to fabrics to how this would wash or the long the life cycle of it or you know just really get the facts in there and then i am so loving using uh fact claim schema mm. so I, I think the other thing is using implementing structured schema, yeah, data sure and wherever i can tie it into it takes me probably often close to an hour to find all the information for all the different components i need to win a, a fact a fact claim but that really validates page yeah actual uh, we can we can we can discuss schema for for another hour but but unfortunately i, I think my listeners at a certain point will tune out only because <laughs> i think what 20 minutes 25 minutes is the uh is the pink point whatever it is i don't know anymore okay thank you for sharing all these insights with us now i have to ask you a question i have this bit everyone knows at this point if you're listening to this podcast regularly i call it optimize it or disavow it i'm going to give you two options Either two really good options, and you have to, you're forced to throw away a good option and go with another option, or two terrible options, and you're forced to pick one of the terrible options. So, this is the Genie Hill version of optimize it or disavow it.
since we're talking about user intent, I have to give you a, a very silly, absurd sort of choice. Assuming, obviously, it's a zero-sum world. You can only do one. You cannot do both. Um, which one would you do? Would you spend your time working and catering and focusing and getting to the heads of your users and targeting user intent? Or do you go with the more traditional building your link profile? Do you have one or the other? For me today, that's a no-brainer. I would go with user intent. Everyone always says it's a no-brainer. I'm like, yeah, I got them, this question. <laughs> no, yeah, for sure. Okay. You know, so like, glad you asked me last year. It could year. make me feel a little better. Like, oh, like, you know, some people pretend and think for a second. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sorry. Uh, you can ask me <laughs> no, again. No, it's okay. Let's try that again. Okay. Now, for, so for, in all seriousness, why do you think user intent? Because I think it's changed. And I think the search engines for a long time have needed to, and I can understand why they, and they still do, rely on link uh, backlinks. That's very much an affirming vote for a page. It says, somebody thinks what's on this page is worthwhile and they want to share it with somebody else. So it's never going to go away from, um, you know, that being an important part, at least not in our foreseeable future. So I guess I'm, I'm answering that way because I think I've already, I've already got that. I can always do more, but I already have a pretty good understanding of that. But I, I think they have been troubled by how much search engines, Google in particular, people have done, Black Hat SEO and link stuffing and right. spamming another site with uh, bad backlinks. And just to just to really give the user the best answer, I think they don't want to be as dependent on that. And so that's where uh, I think we will see more of the algorithm really favoring pages with useful, unique, quality content that answers the user's intent. I 100% agree with that. People forget links are an indirect sort of signal. They don't directly relate to what you're showing on the page. It's, they have no, they, or they had no other choice. I would assume that Google, if it could, wouldn't rely on links because, again, it's not directly correl. It's not a direct cor correlation. Right. It doesn't really tell you what's on the page or if this content actually answers the question. It's a, it's the links are the best that they had, and I don't think they have to rely on them as much as they used to. Though I'm not saying that links aren't important. Don't go home and say, links are not important. Morty said so. You said it perfectly. Well, thank you. I try. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you, Jeannie. Jeannie Hill from Hill Web Creations. Again, thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy day to come on in the frigid Minnesota weather onto the InSearch SEO podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. Loved connecting with you. All righty. Thank you again. And we are back to your regularly scheduled In Search SEO podcast. And it goes without saying that intent is a hot SEO topic and a complicated one due to the lack of automation around it. Thus, help your peers out by sharing your intent tips. Our weekly SEO tip share this week, and I'm, gonna, I'm changing the name. I'm going to call it now the SEO Community Question of the Week. The In Search SEO podcast SEO Community Question of the Week is, what are the best ways to determine user intent? because you don't have a slew of tools there to help you. It's not like rank or something like that, right? So how do you go about doing it? We will post the SEO community question on Twitter, on the Rank Ranger Twitter account. It'll be on my Twitter account, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, all sorts of social media platforms. So look for it. It'll go out on Tuesday with this podcast. It'll be on the social media account. So if you see it in real time, great. If you don't, search for it. And please comment because it would really help people out knowing all these tips. Um, of course, we'll also have a Google form in case you want to answer anonymously. And we'll share that as well. And it'll be that 
link to the sheet will be in the blog post that harbors this podcast. Of course, the question will be there as well. And we'll also put the links so you can answer anonymously on social media also. Okay, so last week, by the way, we asked you what you should be careful of when running automation inside of Google Ads. And you said the best piece of advice I saw was to quote, someone who used the Google sheet to anonymously post said, many users get too comfortable with automation, but you have to stay on top of it or it could spiral out of control really quickly. And what good would that be? And that's a good point because you might think, okay, set it's like the Minoko slow cooker, set it and forget it. But if you set it and forget it and things aren't going right, you've really, you've really, uh, you know, you can really bust the bank in that one. Anyway, thank you, Mr. or Mrs. Anonymous. On to the news, which is not my forte. So hang in with me. Uh, maybe you can let me botch this. Like, I'm not going to botch it, but I'm not, I'm not going to do it nearly as well as Kim. Caveats aside, let's hit it with the news. As mentioned... Google's Q1 numbers for 2019 are not what they used to be. Seeing that the search giant has shown CPC costs are down 19% and that click growth has slowed significantly. Okay, item number two. Bing ads are now Microsoft advertising, apparently to better reflect the AI foundation of the platform. Or in real terms, to offer Microsoft another chance to throw its name around and get rid of any association to Bing, not being as good as Google, because now it's not Bing versus Google, it's Microsoft versus Google. And that's just my cynical opinion. Item number three for the news this week. Boy, am I good at this. Okay, I feel I have to talk about this because everyone else was, but I don't think it's really a news story per se, but I'm going to, I threw it in here anyway, because you all want it. You definitely want to hear this. Apparently, when you Googled how many legs does a horse have, you got a feature snippet that said six, which is not what's that? That's wrong. Um, uh, and everyone goes nuts. But this will happen time to time because the system is not perfect. Okay, by the way, out of all the answers Google has screwed up, saying that a horse has six legs is not so bad. Go back a couple of years ago to some of the ones that Danny Sullivan found about a certain figure from World War II. I'm not going to go into it. Okay, but look, these are wild answers. There's no issue here. They're an aberration, and don't talk to me about aberrations, all right? Moving on. Public service announcement. Google Ads data from April 30th through May 1st could be problematic. A bug has caused performance data to be inaccurate. Check your Google Ads accounts for updates. Speaking of data, Search Console has a data gap. Mind the gap. Due to the indexing bugs a few weeks ago, there is a gap in the Search Console data. To the exclusion of the performance report, the data from April 9th through the 25th has fled the scene. Now, you will still see the data in your account, but it is not actual real data. It's just the connecting of the lines, basically. Okay. On the flip side, Google has added three new Search Console reports. They are the Unparsable Structured Data Report, the SiteLink Search Box Enhancement Report, and the Low Goal Enhancement Report. So three new um, search console reports, check them out. I guess Google does not do brevity, to quote the Big Lebowski, because those those reports' names are long. Anyway, that's the news. Alrighty then. Well, it's been a great show. But before we go, there's one more item of business. Bus- of business, I can say. I can speak English. There's one more item of business, and don't worry. I'm not going to make you pay for it. Get it? Because, you know, Google My Business is going to make you pay for it. Ah, uh, okay, great. Alrighty then, it's time for the fun SEO send-off question. So today, 
I'll ask myself, because that's not weird at all. If Google had a midlife crisis, what would it do? And I've looked for inspiration. I've looked at all my family members, and I can't talk about what they've done on air. But being that I'm the only one here, I will awkwardly answer my own question, which is just awkward. So it's fun for you and awkward for me. I would say, though, that if Google had a midlife crisis, it would close up shop, move out to the desert somewhere, like somewhere in Arizona. It would go off the grid, and it would open a secondhand clothes shop. Because what are you going to do when you are the grid other than go off of it? You're going to buy a Corvette? Please, it doesn't make any sense. Google goes off the grid. That's how it handles midlife crisis. Like, you know, Uncle Harry gets a new wife. That's how he handles it. Poor Uncle Harry. Anyway, that will do it for the In Search SEO podcast this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Do not forget to tune in for a new episode of the In Search SEO podcast next Tuesday. And it's In Search because we're all in search of something. Thank you.